heroes of the faith from the 20th century is a Scotsman by the name of Eric Little. Now, you may not know the name. If you're a movie aficionado, you may remember the movie based on his experience at the 1924 Paris Olympics, that movie Chariots of Fire. Of course, everybody knows the theme that I'm not even going to try to imitate at this point. I remember seeing that film and thinking, this has to be the most boring film I've ever seen. How did this win Best Picture? Somebody had to be paying somebody off for that to happen. But years later, I watched it. Watched it again. It is an incredible movie of this man's faith. Because that's really what it's about. Eric Little was a believer. A very fast believer. Because of his faith in the Lord Jesus, he had made a commitment that he would never run on a Sunday. He felt like that was the Lord's day. And so he wanted to stay focused on the Lord. When he went to the Olympics in Paris that year, that's where the problem arose. His best event, the 200 meters, was run on a Sunday. And Eric Little said, I will not run. They begged and pleaded with him. If there was ever a guaranteed gold medal, that was it. But he stood firm in his faith and his conviction that he would not run on a Sunday. He ran two days later in the 400 meters took home the gold medal but that is not according to many track historians the greatest feat of Eric Little's life they said the greatest thing they ever saw this Scotsman do occurred in a three-way meet between England Scotland and Ireland he was running the 200 the 400 and the 1500 meters like I said the man was fast and had endurance when it came to the time for the 400 event, he started out in this pack and his feet became tangled with another runner and he fell. The pack kept moving and he was literally there on his rear end when he heard a judge saying, get up and run, get up and run. And at this point it's estimated when he looked up, he was already a good 20 to 30 yards behind the last place runner. Now in track and field, and I am not a runner so I'm going on what I've heard, that's an incredible distance to make up. But make it up, Eric Little did. They said he stood to his feet and began running as if he had never run before. He had an unorthodox style. He had, his head would be thrown back, his chest puffed out, and his arms flailing. And they watched in, his ama in amazement as he not only caught up with the last runner, he moved to the middle of the pack. And by the time they rounded the curve, Coming in to the finish line, Eric Little was in second place. And as they came into that home stretch, they saw a kick come into being where he took it up another notch and won the race. He collapsed at the end, exhausted. But I love stories like that. Finish strong. Persevere. When you're knocked down, don't quit. Get up, move, run, endure, finish strong. And it's that idea that I want us to think of now as we are entering into the last three months of the year. Isn't it hard to believe we are in the last quarter of 2018? Last three months. And congregation, I want to issue a challenge to us this morning. I want us to finish strong in our giving this year. This past year, our giving has been down significantly. Now, there are years where that happens. 
You look back at the history of our congregation, there are years of faithful giving and there are years where it's, it's down a bit. But one of the concerning things to me is this. Our giving has been down significantly while our attendance has remained the same compared to last year when the giving was faithful and good and consistent. Now at the same time that our giving has been down, our expenses have continued. Even though belts have been tightened, it's just like at your house. Bills keep coming, do they not? And Because of the generosity of people who give faithfully in past years, a surplus had developed, so we've been able to meet those requirements. The Stewardship Committee has already been working on the budget for this coming year. This afternoon, the proposed budget will be presented to the deacons and the church council for them to look over before it's sent out to the members through the mail. But I can tell you this, based upon the recommendation of the personnel and stewardship committee, that there are no increases anywhere in the budget except in the area of insurance. Imagine that. Insurance premiums increase. But everything else is remaining at the same level. Sunday school, missions, salaries, everything. Same level. And rightly so. That's just wise. That is good stewardship. However, I do believe that in these last three months of 2018, that trend can be reversed. I believe, congregation, that we can finish this year strongly. I believe that we are going to see what God does when His people renew their commitment to be faithful to Him in every area. So for the next four weeks, we are going to be looking at stewardship and giving. Now I say this, and please hear me clearly, it is not to lay a guilt trip on anyone. If God convicts you, that's one thing. But I will work as I preach to preach the text as they are, not to manipulate in any way by guilt. But I do want to be that coach who looks at you and says, don't stop. You can do this. Finish strong. Persevere. Now this series is going to finish on Sunday, November the 4th. That day has been set aside as Prove the Tithe Day. On that Sunday, we're going to prove that God is faithful. Now I want you to look up at the screens because this verse from Malachi, and you may have to move a... Look, there it is. This is the basis for Sunday, that Sunday in November. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby... Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour, pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. You know, this is the only place in the Bible where God says, you test me. God says, if you doubt that I will not bless you when you give, try me and see. Only place in the scripture, and it deals with giving. God says, I promised you. You give faithfully a tithe, which is 10% of what you bring home each week. God says, I will bless you. And so church, I want us to see what happens. I want us to see the possibility, the potential of what can be when every member gives a tithe. So upon the screen, you'll see once again, Sunday, November the 7th, prove the tithe day. Now let me also say, this doesn't mean you wait until the end of tithe. I just want to be clear on that. Be tithing even now. But on that Sunday, 
I want us to see what happens. I want us to see how God will bless. I want us to see how God is faithful to His Word as we give. November 4th. And you can give on the 7th also. You can send it in online. You can mail it. But November 4th is when we will meet and do it. November 7th is another day. Now moving toward this Prove the Tithe Day, I want us to look at some fundamentals. Now I want us to begin with the basis for giving. As I said, guilt is not a good motivator. If you give out of guilt, that leads to resentment. We do it because we feel like we have to, and, and we do it because we feel guilty, but the person who gives out of guilt doesn't feel joy in that. Giving is joyful. The scripture, 2 Corinthians, talks about giving out of a cheerful heart. If you give out of guilt, it does not please God, and it does not give joy in your heart. So we're laying guilt aside, and, and I also want us to see, I don't want us to give out of sheer duty. There's nothing wrong with duty, standing your post and doing what you ought to do. It speaks of faithfulness and perseverance, but doing it out of duty alone, it becomes dry, joyless. Think about how you feel about these two words, jury, duty. So it's not just out of a sense of duty. That's not the basis for giving. There is one basis, I believe, for giving and giving faithfully. And that's love. To give out of love. To give because God loves us and we love Him. That's why I want us to go back to a foundational verse found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 5. The children of Israel on the edge of the promised land. For 40 years they have wandered in the wilderness. 40 years. And now as they are on the edge of arriving at where God has promised them they will dwell. They are on the doorstep of their new home. God gives Moses two sermons to preach. Both of these sermons have the same theme. He really goes back and he reiterates the instructions on how they are to live. As they go into this pagan land, God says, this is how you are to live. And verse 4 and 5 set the tone for the whole law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now lest we write this off as Old Testament and think we live on this side of the cross. That's law. We live under grace. Realize that in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked a question. Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? The idea behind it is what's the one thing I need to do to be sure I'm good with God? And Jesus answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus says, this has not changed. You love God, the rest of all the instructions will fall into place. We are to love God with everything in our being because that is the right response to God's love for us. Chapter 6, verse 4 is really a restatement of the first commandment. You shall worship the Lord your God and worship Him alone. You shall have no other gods before Him. Because in verse 4 when it says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one, that is not a statement on the Trinity. 
Okay, now God is one, and we read back through Trinitarian lens, lenses and interpret that. But the point of the passage is this. The Lord your God is one, meaning He's the only God. There are no others. There is to be no competition for your loyalty. There is to be no competition for whom you value. The Lord your God is God alone. Now keep in mind, for 40 years... For 40 years, God has sustained them. Keep in mind that for 40 years, after God set them free from Egypt by His power, keep in mind that God provided everything that they needed. They had manna in the morning. They had quail. Keep in mind that their shoes never wore out and their clothes never frayed. God sustained them every step along the way. And so now, at the edge of the promised land, God says, Love me. Which begs the question, why this command now? After God has redeemed you and sustained you, wouldn't loving Him be a given? It would seem like it, but it's not. Because the children of Israel are just like me and just like you. We tend to forget God. We tend to drift away the children of Israel are getting ready to go into a land and encounter people who worship false gods. Gods such as El, who is the supreme God who controls the weather. So they believe that by giving to El, giving what he wanted, the weather would be good and favorable and they would have good crops. The god Baal is the god of fertility and prosperity. If we want to have many children and we want crops that overflow, we need to engage in the worship of the false god Baal. They were tempted to worship these gods in order to secure what they wanted. Security, prosperity, pleasure, and control. We face the same temptations. We're no different. We may think for a moment, well, I don't worship an idol. I don't worship a god named El. But I want you to think what is behind every false god that they worship. The worship of their gods was a way to, they believed to control the weather, to exert their power. Do the right thing for the God, do what He wants, and you have control over what happens. Is that not power? The worship of the false god Baal, engage, you would engage in sexual immorality. Is that not the pursuit of pleasure? The reason they engaged in this power play to gain Weather was to gain prosperity, to get rich by their crops. Is that not money, power, pleasure, money? The names have changed, but the false gods are the same. Because we engage in valuing those things above anything else. In the pursuit of prosperity, the pursuit of money, our question is, how can I be secure and get what I want? When it comes to sex, the whole idea is pleasure. How can I get what I want and not feel guilty and engage in what I believe is truly satisfying? Power. How can I be in control to get what I want? You see, a false god is whatever takes the place of value in our lives. 
It's what we hold up as supreme and what we love and what we are convinced will bring ultimate satisfaction and joy to our lives. It's what we love supremely. And anything can fall in to that definition of a false god. But here's what we need to keep in mind. This is why God is telling them, love me. Your false god will always in the end destroy you. Always. Whatever you worship other than God through Jesus Christ will in the end betray you and destroy you. Money. It's never enough. Think about that. If we make sex and pleasure into our God, look at our culture. Where has that led us? We cried out for abortion on demand, in other words, so that if our our pleasurable acts brought about something we didn't intend, we could take care of it and the law would say, it's okay. Look around in an environment where women are objectified and abused. Has sexual freedom really brought freedom? Our God is killing us. Power. We hunger for power and control. But I promise you, any power that we gain will eventually be used to oppress and destroy and will ultimately corrupt us to get more power. If we make money and prosperity our God, we need to heed the warning found in 1 Timothy. You'll see it up on the screen. 1 Timothy 6, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Not money, okay? Now be clear, this is not being naive. We need money for food, shelter, things like that. It's simply a a trading means for those goods, but it is the love when we lift up money as the focus of our lives. It becomes a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving, Paul says, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What can I do to get more? How can I cheat? What do I need to do? If I cut this little corner, if I compromise here, it's okay because then I'm getting more money. The solution is to remember this, that there is only one God and to love Him with everything that we have. Don't break down verse 5 too much. When it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, it's a way of saying love Him with every part of your being. With everything you have, love God. Believer, there's not to be one part of your life that remains uncommitted to God. There's not to be one part of your life with which you do not love God. What you have been given by God is to be used as an instrument to love Him and to glorify Him. Whether it be family, friends, possessions, whatever it is, is simply a means by which you can show your love for God and glory in that. But the area we refuse to love God with is the area where Satan will build a stronghold. It is that area you will experience anxiety, worry, fear, You see, when we go into the Christian faith and we think, well, there are certain parts of my life that I will keep apart, we are already losing the battle. Ivan the Great was a czar of Russia in the 15th century. Brilliant mind, brilliant military strategist. But as he became advanced in years, he had never married and he began to search for a a wife. Wanted to have children to, to, to pass along the great name. And the story goes that he met the king of Greece and an arranged marriage was made between Ivan the Great 
and the daughter of the king of Greece. Well, the king of Greece was Greek Orthodox. So in order for this marriage to take place, Ivan had to convert. So he goes to Greece with 500 of his palace guard. And because they love Ivan so much, they say to their king, if you convert to the Greek Orthodox faith, we also will convert. But here was a problem. To convert to that faith, you had to be baptized. And the church would not baptize professional soldiers because it did not want to condone murder. So these soldiers had a problem. How can we convert to this faith and be baptized and still remain soldiers and guard our king? So they found a compromise. They were all baptized, but they just kept their sword arm out of the water. I'll baptize everything, but the arm with which I will fight with, that's still mine. Have we done the same thing? And we said, Lord, I will follow you, but, but my family, that's my family. But Lord, I will follow you, but work is work. Lord, I will follow you, but my money is my money. I will love you with everything else, but a half love is not a full love. If we hold out in any area of our lives, Satan will camp out there. And he will work through that one area to eventually destroy you. Many are troubled by the fact that God commands us to love Him. How can you command love? That'd be like me going to Jody and saying, Love me! That's vain and arrogant. Well, we know God is not vain or arrogant. This command to love is not because God needs us to love Him. It's not. God had a perfect love relationship in the Trinity before the world began. God didn't need love. So this command to love God has to be for our benefit. This is God showing love for us. Not only has He redeemed His people and sustained His people, He is saying the greatest good, the greatest fulfillment, the greatest pleasure you long for is found in loving me. This is not a selfish command. It is a command out of love. When God says love me, it's because that is what we need the best and the most. Remember, this command comes after God has delivered His people. After God has chosen them. After God has provided for them. The New Testament shows the same truth. God has redeemed us through Jesus Christ. Chosen us by His grace. And He says, because I have loved you, you love me. God initiates and this coming to love Him is a response to Him. And so because God wants us to know the greatest joy, the greatest freedom. He says, love me with everything that you have. The way to be free from the false God of money is to learn to live generously. That's the way we smash that idol. Is to say, Lord, this is yours. Now, in the next few weeks, we're going to deal with the barriers, the struggles, because I know automatically Satan's going to be working and saying, well, you, you know, you're in debt, you can't give, or, or you've got retirement ahead, you've got college, you can't. And that's where I want us to see, let's take God and His Word and trust Him. And if we want to be more concerned about things eternal, we need to give to the things that are eternal. Randy Alcorn puts it like this. He says, suppose you buy shares of General Motors. 
what happens next? You suddenly develop an interest in GM. You look at the financial pages. You see magazine articles about GM and you read every word. Even though a month ago you would have ignored it, but now because you are invested in it, you're interested. Suppose you're giving to help African children who suffer with AIDS. Because you give whenever you see an article now, you're hooked on that article. If you, you send money to plant churches in India and an earthquake hits India, you watch the news and you begin to pray fervently. So this morning, if you're wishing you cared more about eternal things, then begin giving to eternal things. Put your resources, your assets, your money, possessions, your time, your talents, your energies into the things of God and then watch what happens. As surely as the compass needle points north, your heart will follow your treasure. Love God with everything and see your joy expand. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.